Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. Yay, science! I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods out of the UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Don't mess with Texas. (laughs) So I want to give everybody a super special welcome to our first mini pod. So this podcast is kind of out of the every other week sequence that we do because today we will be breaking down our own academic article that was released today. Very exciting. The article is called Family Versus Intimate Partners, Estimating Who Matters More for Health in a 20-Year-Long Study. You guys were just super brilliant. Um, <laughs> or based, based, on, or based on that title alone. Um, anyway, the American Psychological Association has put out a press release for this as well that will attach to the podcast description and uh, the Twitter and all of that social media stuff we do so you guys can look at it. Additionally, we're going to discuss related advice about how to deal with difficult family members kind of based on the findings of our article. So you guys ready to get started? Let's do it. Absolutely. In this mini pond, we're going to jump right into the academic deep dive section. So today, like I said, we're going to talk about our own paper that is out today, published in the Journal of Family Psychology and put out by the American Psychological Association, titled Family versus Intimate Partners, Estimating Who Matters More for Health in a 20-Year Longitudinal Study. As with every episode, um, a link to this article specifically and also the press release um, is going to be available in the episode's description and on Twitter and Instagram and all of those fun social media places. So before Sarah takes it away, we should also mention that Sarah is the first author and led us on this wonderful academic journey on this paper. So thank you so much, Sarah, for letting Jacob and I tag along with this one. Yay, the crowd goes wild, all two of us. Yay, Um, true group effort. (laughs) So before Sarah takes off, um, I'm just going to give a little bit of background. So our research broadly tests how close family relationship impacts adult physical health, either directly or indirectly through stress, mental health, or health behaviors. Health behaviors being exercise, eating, maybe alcohol consumption, smoking, things like that. Although we, um, as a group of three researchers, are (laughs) intentional about incorporating both intimate partnerships, that's like marriage and cohabitating partners, and other types of family relationships. So siblings, parents, we have found kids, various things like that. Um, We have found that that that's not actually typical of other research in in the field. And it should be noted that this is kind of a burgeoning area of research looking at these Uh, social support and family relationships and how they are linked to health, Um, but people tend to either group it all together or focus only on marriage, and to be honest, I'm very guilty of of that, that marital relationship is something that I continuously try to um, hammer home, but this research um, maybe suggests that I shouldn't be so hard-headed about that. Anyway, 
<laughs> most often, it's so true, most often researchers, like I said, focus on romantic relationships, especially marriage, presuming that they likely have a more powerful impact on health compared to other family relationships. However, given changes in how Americans are partnering, they're waiting a little bit longer to get married than they used to, and I believe we've talked about in the past, and sometimes not even marrying at all, and the length likely lengthier and possibly more emotion-laden trajectories of family of origins uh, relationships. So as people live longer, uh, you have longer interactions with them. We wanted to compare the strength of that association between family intimate partners on health over time. And specifically, we're looking at this 20-year period of time. So Sarah... Can you tell Yay. our wonderful listeners more about this project that we did? Absolutely. Um, so we were interested in testing whether um, negative family emotional climate as well as negative intimate partner emotional climate would be... Can you tell us real quick how uh, emotional climate, what that is and how it's defined? Absolutely. Um, so how we defined it in this paper um, was looking at kind of the emotional span of the quality of relationships, okay. meaning in intimate partner relationships, we looked at uh, strain and support specific to spousal relationships as well as non-spousal romantic relationships, mm -hmm. uh, whether or not they were married, they could be cohabiting, et cetera. And then within family relationships, we looked at family relationships other than the intimate partnership, which could have included all those relationships you described earlier in terms of parents, adult children, siblings, et cetera, extended family. Um, and in those relationships, we also looked at strain and support. So in general, we looked at the um, two ends of the spectrum in terms of quality of the relationships in those different kinds of relationships. And okay. we predicted that the more negative these relationships were, so greater strain and less support in both intimate partners and with non-intimate partner family members, we thought uh, our hypothesis was that that would be then associated with a greater number of health conditions at a later date and time, as well as worse health appraisal or self-rated health, how okay. um, healthy I think I am on a scale of like one to five, core to excellent over time. So basically, or, if we thought that if you had a really bad, what we're calling and other people call, if you had a really bad emotional climate in your family, so high strain, low support, um, a lot of negativity in that relationship, you're going to have worse health outcomes measured both as overall appraisal, how do I feel health-wise, and also the number, you're going to count up the number of, of illnesses you have. Yeah which we, uh, I don't, it, we refer to in the paper as morbidity, mm -hmm. uh, the okay. number of health conditions, which we did not invent that term. I'm just saying that for listeners who look up the paper, that's what we call it. Yeah. <laughs> I am happy to take credit for the term morbidity. <laughs> if people want to that. say that. That's right. So hashtag definitely, trademark, TM, yeah, trademark, morbidity. Definitely cite us every future use of that word. Um, <laughs> We also secondarily hypothesized that we would find stronger associations between non-marital family relationships and adult health compared to intimate partner relationships 
meaning um, because as you said earlier, Patricia, that those relationships tend to be longer and potentially more right. intensely emotional and relationships that people are embedded in for a longer part of their lifespan, um, especially since we're capturing probably both um, siblings and parents as well as adult children. There's all these non-intimate family relationships. It, it really is, um, it was our, uh, thought beforehand that we might find stronger connections between a more negative family emotional climate than a more negative intimate partner emotional climate. So, right. and this was just our idea based on our experience doing yes. uh, therapy and, and research over the years. No one has actually really tested that or really hypothesized much that family relationships right. are going to be stronger, but based on our observations, we expected this to be so. That's right. And also, we ourselves, or maybe it's just me and I'm just going to say it's we, get frustrated at all this romantic relationship yeah. research and some of the pushback we've gotten about why are we including family members other than the marital partner? Do they really matter? Are they as important? And there's not really any evidence that suggests once we turn 18 that our family members somehow become less important. No. Um, and we some get a lot of- Some of us maybe wish that they would, but <laughs> right, that's not is... how families work. <laughs> Which is exactly, uh, which would exactly be a, something we would identify as potentially a problem that <laughs> we would say maybe would be something that might make us less healthy if we really want to be more distant from these people because they're so strained and so toxic. Fair um, uh, but so frustrated with some of those questions and that pushback and not really being able to find any evidence about to be able to support what we were saying that family matters, right. which is so, was really frustrating for me at least. We said, well, based on what we understand and what we observe and um, theory, we think there might be stronger associations, which uh, I was very nervous when we sent it to the journal. <laughs> they would reject it outright. Thankfully, they did not. <laughs> and so we tested our hypotheses using the Midas data set, which is the midlife development in the United States data set, as you both know. Um, and it's um, it's been ongoing for now over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so um, we included participants who had joined each of the three waves. So starting in 1995, 96, mm -hmm. and participating again in between 2004 to 2006, and then most recently during 2013 and 2014. Mm -hmm. So we wanted specifically to look at partnered participants. So we wanted to be able to compare some of the strengths, right, between their family relationships and their intimate partner relationships. Right. Um, and it should be known yeah. that this data set is accessible to anyone. Mm -hmm. It's funded by the National Institutes of Health. So it's a federally funded data source and anyone can gain access to it. We did not collect this data for over um, 20 years. We didn't start That's when right. we were two. Those were all 22. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, just straight out of undergrad, just hitting it, hitting it out of the park. And <laughs> just setting expectations really at a normal level for Very normal uh, level. family scientists listening. Um, <laughs> So <laughs> using this publicly available data set that we did not collect, uh, we grabbed the partnered participants who had uh, completed all three waves, uh, which includes um, some intense, intense phone interviews, as well as really huge, thorough surveys that got mailed to their home and they mail back in. And the purpose of this project is to 
look at biopsychosocial factors uh, that impact health across the aging lifespan. So that resulted in 2,802 partnered participants that were an average age of about 45 years old at baseline at 1995, 96. So we're capturing also a sample of midlife adults here that are less often researched, especially in terms of thinking about, as we said earlier, family relationships, not into partnerships. So then we took all that data and the quality of the relationships and their health uh, across these 20 years, and we used a technique called cross-leg path analysis to test the associations between each of these measures of family and intimate partner emotional climate, family strain, family support, intimate partner strain, intimate partner support, at each of these three Midas waves with their concurrent health as well as their health 10 years later. And Patricia, this is kind of um, especially your um, brainchild. Do you want (laughs) to describe a little bit more about why this approach was especially a fit? Yeah. So one of the really, really challenging things in what's called human subjects research or when we study humans is trying to find these causal versus correlational paths. So causal means that one variable actually causes change in another variable where correlation is that they're just kind of associated. And one of the big critiques in uh, social science or uh, psychological research is that a lot of it's a lot of correlational research that these are just associations and not causal, but sometimes people assume that they're causal. So one way to think of a correlational is is increase in ice cream sales are associated with increases in shark attacks. So obviously that's correlational. Eating more ice cream does not in fact cause you to have a, a shark attack. Thank um, God. Right. Um, but, but it's correlational. What is actually the cause of both of those? Well, it's going to be, or increase in both of those, it's going to be summertime, right? So, so the, the time of the year. So one of the really hard things about human subjects research is that you can't force people to be in a certain family emotional climate, right? We can't um, uh, make people be in an unhappy family and make people be in a happy family and then follow those people over time and see if one is healthier or one is not. So that is called like a randomized control trial. So you randomize people into different groups and you just can't do that with humans. It's unethical. So one way to get around that is to do it statistically, which is through this cross-lag path analysis. And there are three things that have to be present in order for in, in order for a relationship to be causal once it's temporal precedence the second one is a correlation does actually have to be present so the two variables have to be uh, related. And the third one is that um, another variable can't actually be causing change in your outcome variable. One way I like to think about this is drinking alcohol and becoming drunk. We all know that drinking alcohol causes you to become drunk. One reason is we can look at temporal precedence where we can, you have to drink the alcohol before you, you become drunk. The alcohol is causing you to become drunk, but it has to come before. Otherwise, if you become drunk and then drink alcohol, you would assume, and no, it wasn't the alcohol that caused you to be drunk. It's something else. An association or correlation means that increase in one is linked to 
associated with increase in another. So the more you drink alcohol, the more you become drunk. And getting rid of a third variable that is actually causing you to become drunk, you would want to make sure that you're not having any other substances in uh, your body. Like maybe you're not also simultaneously getting some marijuana in your body or any other drugs, or you have some other processes in your body that is randomly creating alcohol. You want to make sure that there's not a third variable explaining that. To Are do there that, random processes that create alcohol? I just heard of one in the news about really? this person who is apparently walking around being drunk all the time because their liver was making alcohol, kidney. I don't that know. Is, um, that, right? Can I be? Can I sign me up for that process? Right, and then you oh, go no. drive around and explain to the cop like why <laughs> why you're drunk. Okay. Also, this this mini pod should not be taken as medical advice. <laughs> that is outside of our scope for sure. For. Sure. So anyway, to do that statistically, you do a statistical method called cross-lag analysis, where you um, include all of the variables of interest at each time point and statistically significant paths from time one to time two assume that that is the direction of, of causality. If you want a full lecture on statistical causation and cross-lag analyses, come uh, to my statistics class or just send me an email and I can give you a lot longer explanation. Wow. <laughs> Should I not be offering that? Come on. Everybody no. loves statistics. I'm sure my inbox is going to be flooded. So you're, you're recruiting students. Jacob recruits <laughs> clients from the class. No, I, I <laughs> Oh, he's denying. I recruit sponsorships. I recruit pure Michigan. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. That too. <laughs> The Midwest. So using that approach that Patricia just described, we tested two models. One first looking at morbidity or number of chronic health conditions, and the second mm -hmm. looking at health appraisal, self-rated health. So we found that greater family strain at minus one and two were associated with a greater number of health conditions at minus two and three, respectively, meaning 10 years later um, over both waves. So then we also found that um, greater family strain was associated with worse health appraisal at 10 years later, and then again, 10 years after that. So the only other variable in the quality of relationships that we found that was at all associated with health was that um, midway of the study at minus two, about 2004, greater family support at that time was associated with better self-rated health 10 years later at mm. the final wave which means that all other family relationship health associations we tested over time were not significant. So although we hypothesized we'd find stronger associations between the quality of non-marital family relationships and health, if I may say, speak for all of us, we were truly surprised that family yeah. strain was by far the prominent relationship measure associated with later health. And it was actually the sole measure right. um, uh, related to later health other than that time to family support, which means that we've found zero associations between intimate partner support or strain and later health that were significant. They were all non-significant, yeah. um, which we would not have guessed. We hypothesized weaker associations. We certainly did not guess and therefore reran multiple times to make sure that Sarah, missing is something. error, that we, were, <laughs> yeah, we were missing some variables, um, and the reviewers at the screen will 
did a beautiful job giving it super meaningful feedback that did have us add in extra control variables and make sure that we were accurately testing what we were testing, which we were. And so that really was the find the final finding that we had, and we were pretty surprised. Um, yeah, it blew which, my mind that marital relationships were not nearly as important on your health as uh, in my mind, and pretty much all my previous research has assumed that they were. Right. <laughs> and, and and for other samples, they maybe this is just yeah, that's a fair one. Point. This is one project, one sample of thousands of people, and um, Patricia was not thrilled with these results, which is why you set up your hypotheses beforehand, so that later right. one of your one of your colleagues doesn't try to take the study and say, oh, no, <laughs> "Hey, I wouldn't have done that." Right. <laughs> so we suggest there are probably a few takeaways. I mean, um, we're pretty yeah. excited about this project, but I think especially for um, people who are thinking about their own health conditions, that for people who already have health conditions, which was a lot of our participants at baseline, they were an average age of 45. So they were a little bit younger, a little bit older, but there were lots of people who had chronic conditions at baseline. Even their health got worse, but especially predicted by conflictual family relationships. Yeah. So diabetes, hypertension, arthritis, chronic back pain, stomach aches, et cetera. These, these health issues all have behavioral components and aspects of taking care of yourself. And the management of health conditions, which we know from lots of other research, is really benefited from family support. But what we're suggesting is potentially a takeaway of this project is that the management of these conditions and your overall health could be made worse, more challenging by conflictual strained family relationships. So yes. there may really be significance to focusing on the quality of family relationships to prevent worse health decline over time, that unhealthy relationships with parents and siblings and adult children and extended family, if we leave those unattended to, may have serious ramifications for your physical health uh, throughout adulthood. So important to bring supportive people to maybe your primary care visits and yeah. talking openly with family members about your health and talking with them about how they can be supportive. But also a final takeaway I just want to mention is that we think about family therapy and a lot of the literature thinks about family therapy and bringing non-marital family members to therapy at the extreme ends of life. When there are issues with a kid and it's got to potentially include some advice or work around parenting and managing behavioral issues. And then again, at the end of life, we care about family members when there is caregiving issues, dementia, serious health conditions of a very elderly family member that uh, maybe adult children or spouses need support around. And then we think about how to support those who are caregivers. But our results here suggest that maybe using family therapy to uh, improve some of these family relationships could have some benefits for physical health, as well as just the importance of improving the quality of the relationships with your loved ones. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree, Sarah. I was thinking too about if you think about the roots of family therapy, originally it was housed in bringing like the whole family together. If it was a partner issue, it didn't matter. They wanted everybody in the room. But as family therapy has progressed, it really has become either like, okay, families will be there if it's about a kid or if it's about taking care of a, an aging parent. 
but in the middle, it's all about the partnership. And I think one thing, and I don't think our study would suggest or that we'd even claim that your romantic partnership doesn't matter to your health or your well-being or anything like that. But I do think, you know, family relationships are a little bit different in the sense that you can't, it's, well, I guess you could, but legally to divorce your parent or your child or a sibling or an uncle or an aunt, we don't have mechanisms for that because we expect those relationships to continue across time. And so those continued interactions, whether or not you're close to them, they still exist in your emotional world and, and allow you to be stressed out about them, even if they're states and states away. Right. And so I think that not focusing on family relationships really hinders relationship research, especially for adults, because of the the impact we're showing here and our other studies that have looked at these associations show that families matter and they matter a lot more than we think they do. Absolutely. And bringing up something that Jacob has said several times, when as a society, we think of, oh, I got to get healthy. I got to get my body right. We oftentimes think of eating well, increasing our exercises. But one thing I think this research emphasizes and that we highly recommend is when you think about, oh, I need to get healthy, also identify those relationships in your life that are causing stress and figuring out how maybe you can help reduce that stress. And also like Sarah was saying, identify those relationships in your life that are supportive and help you decrease the other existing stress that might occur and, and nurture those relationships and make sure you hold those relationships dear because these findings don't just talk about how those the problems with strain in family relationships. It also talks about briefly how those how support in family relationships can actually improve how you feel about your health ten years later, which is remarkable. Very exciting. Um, so building a little bit off of that article, time for good or bad advice. Woohoo! Boo! We actually had a listener uh, send in this advice about how to, seven strategies to deal with difficult family members, wanting to know if we thought this was good or bad advice, and I thought it perfectly paired with this article. So if you guys are ready in this mini pod edition, you guys ready? 100%. Good or bad. Good or bad <laughs> advice. I know it was a mini pod, so I was trying to I was trying to reduce it, but yeah. good or bad advice. So number one, don't try to fix the difficult person. Accept them exactly as they are. This applies to all difficult people, not just family. It's tempting to try to help someone you want to care about. You probably will make some efforts to help them. Sometimes it works, but often your efforts will not be rewarded. In fact, trying to fix someone or make their life better may become a huge headache. What do you guys think? Good or bad advice? So I, I as I always am, I'm probably going to be a little bit on the fence on this one, Sarah. <laughs> First of all, accepting them as exactly as they are, uh, I have a, that's a little bit of a tough pill for me to swallow. Okay. Right? Like, um, Sure, like acceptance means it to me in my mind, and maybe this is what the author 
it's talking about. Acceptance for me means like I'm bringing you into my life. You're a part of me. I accept that. I love you unconditionally. And if you're working with a, to if you're in a relationship with a toxic person, bringing them into your life can be really terrible. And also like, I, I also think that trying to avoid, I, I agree, like trying to fix somebody isn't helpful, but being there for somebody, listening to them, offering them suggestions and hope, which can be a way of fixing them, I also think it's a good thing. Mm. So I, I think that this is, uh, don't try to fix the person, but you also don't have to accept exactly who they are. That's my thought. Yeah, so you're right. You are on the fence. Woods. <laughs> very, very typical. Um, I. Um, oh, <laughs> I think Woods is going to be on the fence here. <laughs> I agree with the core piece of advice of don't try to fix somebody else. Meaning, I think that sets anybody up to be doing all of the emotional labor in a relationship and probably isn't necessarily mm. that productive. Um, and I don't love the term accept them as they are, meaning you don't need to accept toxic people in your life. It's, I think it's okay to name for people when their behavior is not okay. I don't accept the way you're treating me, that this is not, mm. this is not acceptable for me. This is not how I want to be connecting with you. This isn't, this is not okay. Right. So I, I wouldn't want the advice to connote not being able to set boundaries. Right. I'm a huge fan of boundaries, but if I shift my, how I would, um, if I shift how I understand the word accept to be more aligned with like the serenity prayer um, in terms of accepting the things that I can't change and the wisdom to know the difference, mm. then, then I'm a little bit more okay with it because I, I think I tie it back to that emotional labor piece of you. It's very unlikely that if not impossible to change somebody else, that they have to be able to, they have to be willing to put in effort and meet you halfway and they have to be bought into that process. And so accepting that I can't change them is also setting a boundary. And so then I get to define how do I want to be connected with them mm -hmm. and so not just echoing a little bit of the last pod of the, uh, the politics um, yeah, episode. Yeah. 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 So good or bad advice. Uh, mostly good. Okay. Ooh, I sounded like Join me on the fence. Oh, Join me on the fence. It's a comfortable, warm place to be, apparently. <laughs> um, okay, moving on. Be present and direct. Know that a person who is trying to stir up conflict can easily set you off emotionally and even physically, possibly raising your heart rate and blood pressure. Try to avoid getting into a fight or flight response, which inevitably leads to becoming defensive. I think good advice if you can actually yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I think that there's there's this issue where people are people closest to you know your emotional reaction and they know, know but they've helped push they've helped create they, those buttons yes yeah. they have right and so they know them and so being able to just say okay i'm going to just be present and direct is really difficult and i don't think most people especially if we're talking about difficult person in our lives do that well without the help of a therapist or practice to do that i would that. agree with that yeah so being present direct is great advice. Don't know if you're going to be able to do it all the time. Right. Or even know that it's really, really hard to do. So 
going into a situation, just be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I agree. I think it's good advice and I think have um, normal uh, expectations for yourself Okay. Uh, because you're right. You might not go into a situation and know that that's going to necessarily be challenging and it's not always going to be perfect. So forgiving yourself and also forgiving the the other person for um, if and when um, things become challenging is, is, is sometimes okay to do, I think. And then kind of revisiting the fact that like, I kind of regret my behavior there. So can we try that again or, or just kind of apologizing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think it's good advice. Mm -hmm. Good advice. Three, do encourage difficult people to express themselves. Let them fully state their point of view about the issue, conflict, problem without interruption. Why do they feel judged or criticized by others? What do they feel people misunderstand about them? What do they want or expect from others? The idea is to remain as neutral as possible. I think this is great great advice for this person's therapist. Yeah, that's what I mean. right. Right? Like yeah, I think people need to be heard out and right. you know, but if they're attacking somebody you love or they're attacking you or they're you know, like I think that there's instances when that expression is just going to add more toxicity and feed into their narrative and pattern of behavior, which should not be helpful. Mm -hmm. So I really think that you should allow people to express themselves to a point and that also being non-judgmental and allowing that space is something that happens more effectively in therapy. Yeah. If you have a difficult person that needs to do this frequently with you, they should go see somebody. Yeah, or to, or go with them to see a family therapist. Yeah, Woods. Yeah, I I I think this is bad advice. <laughs> I which is a version of what Jacob's saying. Uh, mm-hmm. I I I also am reacting to like my own experiences. If I don't tend to find difficult people are challenged and express themselves and get in the space to do so, I tend to find more challenging people express themselves all the time and just don't yeah. give other space, people the space to do that. And I'm much more like a person to then just kind of withdraw and like shut down and just like let people talk at me, which I guess makes me probably a fit for being a therapist in my professional <laughs> life. Um, <laughs> right. I do think there is, um, there's possibly tendency to identify relationships as being challenging and not fully understand what their point of view is. And so in, if that's how I was to understand this advice, I would say that it's definitely beneficial to explore and understand other people's perspectives. But that title of like encouraging difficult people to express themselves, I don't tend to find that like that that's really very challenging. Yeah, it's an interesting point of view that the difficult person is, they're having a hard time having the space to express themselves. It just seems like and I'm not a sure false gonna, reality. Yeah, I'm not sure they're going to express themselves in a way that is like healthy and productive. Yeah. And what are the chances you're going to be able to sit there neutrally if there's somebody you've already identified as someone who's a difficult person? Right. Um, I just, uh, when we think back to that Gottman research we talked about a few episodes ago, you think about all of the red flags that are occurring in relationships that bring themselves to therapy. They are, um, 
Oh, the couples therapy. Yeah. Right. They are probably, they are probably people who express themselves all over the place and it's all dysregulated and uh, conflictual and very negative. Right. So eh, bad advice. I don't like it. <laughs> bad advice. Don't like it. Watch for trigger topics. Inevitably, there will be topics that represent points of disagreement and disharmony. Know what these topics are and be extremely aware when these are brought up. Your past experiences should help you, especially when you are confronted with these delicate subjects. I feel like this touches on what you guys have previously said about triggers. Well, yeah, I, I feel like this advice is kind of contradictory to the advice that just came before. About <laughs> like, listening to everybody, yeah. All this space to express themselves, even if they're difficult because they need to be heard. But wait. Watch out for trigger topics, you know. Like, Walk the heck out of there if you see one. You know, so I think that, yeah, again, trigger topics are probably what the person who's difficult wants to bring up. Right. The things that are making them emotional and making them frustrated. And so I don't know how you do number three of the advice and do number four. Yeah. I think that it, for that reason, I'm going to say bad advice because – I don't think you should, you sh in some instances, you should avoid these topics, but if you're trying to be present and listen, these are the topics that are getting brought up. Best of luck to you achieving the piece before, as well as this piece of advice. <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. It's, um, also, the chances that the difficult family member is reading this, like these pieces of advice, right? The person getting these pieces of advice and the listener who suggested that these might be things that we can discuss is the person on the receiving end of this mean meaning it's like setting up up entirely to be the one who's doing all the emotional labor yeah and yep. i think we just got done saying that that in the first piece of advice that that's not a fair expectation and that's never a healthy relationship so this one is saying like let them dump all over you be totally neutral about it somehow and then also watch for the trigger topics that didn't come up when you were letting them express themselves and continue to walk on eggshells yeah. while the other person just... I felt yeah. it was very eggshell-y to me. Yeah, too. I, don't, I, don't, I don't love it so bad. I know. I wanted to know where, where it's like hold the person accountable. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Tell no, them that they're not allowed to behave like this at family events. Yeah, that is not, I mean, setting those types, going back to what Sarah said, setting boundaries, I think is a better way to deal with difficult people. Yeah. So this next one is kind of uh, very similar. Know that some topics are absolutely off limits. So be aware, it seems like of when the difficult person brings up trigger points and also you yourself be aware um, that some topics are absolutely off limits and don't bring them up. Again, yeah. Bad advice. If you're dealing with a difficult person, the reason why they're difficult is because they're bringing up topics that may make you uncomfortable, make them uncomfortable, that are probably typically off limits. I think you can and should talk about them in a certain way, but it has to, uh, again, just kind of reiterating what I said before, there has to be that accountability in place, right? If, the, if you, as Sarah was saying, if you are the only one taking any responsibility or accountability in this type of discussion with a difficult person, then you are then that person's therapist and you are putting down or shoving down all of your reactions and right. emotions. It's, it not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a two-way relationship then, no. right? It's, no. it's just uh, them coming at you and you having to absorb all of that energy. Anything to add? I, yeah, I think this is good advice. Oh, <laughs> 
cultural, I just said. Um, meaning, I think it's okay that families decide that, like, eh, you probably don't need to have. Like, oh. everything doesn't always need to be on the table. I, I'm thinking about just our most recent episode five, right. uh, where we talked about politics that, like, I think it's okay if everyone's on the same page about we're going to approach this not in a way where we're learning, trying to learn about the other person's perspective. We're going to approach it in a way that's going to get really emotional and kind of hostile, or I'm going to try to be convincing you to change your mind, or I can't kind of regulate my own emotions. My heart rate goes through the roof, whatever it is. I think it's okay, especially in the month of November and preparing for family get togethers. Uh, I think it's okay if families decide this probably just isn't a topic that we're going to necessarily make progress on without professional involvement that you just decided off limits. The one caveat I would have to that, Sarah, is I, I think your about professional involvement is key. I also think that sometimes families decide that there are certain conversations sure. that are off yes. limits that become secrets that become top yes. families. Totally. So I think you're totally. talking about a different example, but I think in certain cases, the yes. off limits or ta- taboo topics are exactly the, the topics that need to be discussed that aren't being discussed. That's right. I, I agree. We also have a very clinical perspective as family therapists. And also, I agree, it's probably a lot, uh, it's probably pretty pervasive what you're discussing. Yeah, absolutely. But those family secrets, those topics that are off limits, if they're really, really hard to talk about it, maybe bringing them up over Thanksgiving isn't the place to no, do it. No. Um, maybe trying to get everybody to come in and have a third party, which actually, now that I'm thinking about it, could be an interesting um, new family therapy technique where just family <laughs> therapists go to different people's Thanksgiving dinners and you're eating and hopefully not drinking too much and just helping, helping people have a conversation around the yeah. dinner table. I don't know. If nothing else, it'd be an amazing reality television show. <laughs> actually, sure. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Trade, trademark, you know, trademark. <laughs> Cite us for that idea. Yeah. yeah. Or just hire us to be the therapist. That's right. That's right. I'm not busy on things. I'll just be the host. I'll just come in and be the deploy. host. Deploy, right. deploy, deploy. It's not about you, usually. Yes, right. it's hard not to take things personally, especially when you're attacked or made to feel responsible for someone else. But if you look at the anatomy of a conflict, which I love that phrase, going to use it more often, anatomy of a conflict, you can see how these things often play out. Notice how people progressively, progressively move through a discussion or argument. Usually it initially centers around a specific topic, disagreement, or response that made the person upset, then you can follow the trajectory from from there. So in essence, just be mindful that it's not about you. Typically, it's just how they respond to things. Oh, I'm coming down on the fence again. So yes, I think that a lot of times conflict isn't about the person who is maybe on the receiving end of the conflict, but that's a very linear way to think about it, Mm. right? Human relationships are very interactional and unfold over time and are complex and complicated. So just to reduce it down to, it's not about you, you know, like they're just mad at something else. Well, yeah, but it could be a whole bunch of other things and not taking it personally is really hard, but it's an important person who may be saying things hurtful about somebody else you love or about you. And so I think that trying to maintain that again, is maybe not your role in this instance. It could set you up for more harm, more destruction for your relationship. But I think 
on the whole, typically when people are reacting to someone, they're not just reacting about what is going on in that moment in time. It's typically connected to previous interactions, other experiences that have happened in the past. So in that case, yeah, good advice. But addressing conflict this way, I'm a little, I'm a little okay. hesitant about that. What's? Uh, I think it's good advice. Um, I think it's not a bad first strategy to decide this isn't necessarily about me. Let me take mm -hmm. a deep breath and see if I can shift my perspective and get curious about why the other person is becoming emotional or becoming upset or can I get around that initial reaction of defensiveness to get curious about what's going on for them might help to shift my perspective and help me to understand a family member better. I think um, when people get critical, again, we can set boundaries around that behavior is not acceptable, that you, um, that you mock me or criticize me, uh, but I also need to not become defensive. Um, and instead I can kind of wonder about, or the other reason I think this is good advice is because it's also true about myself. So I can hear this dyadically, right? That even when I'm upset with somebody else and it starts to feel personal, like I'm, I'm angry with them or I want to be mad. Um, I want to be mad at them or express my frustration with them. It can also help me slow down to say like, is, is it really about them or are there other things going on for me or is there a way where I could identify what emotion I'm having rather right. than be critical or attacking? So I hear it as better. I hear it as good advice. Your own well-being comes first. This is the last bit of advice. While you want to be respectful and attentive to others as much as you can, you don't want to bend over backwards or twist yourself into a knot just to make someone else happy or satisfied or to keep the peace. Never allow any personal interaction or relationship to infringe upon or challenge your own well-being. You had me tell right there almost, right? Oh. Never allow any person or interaction or personal interaction or relationship to infringe upon or challenge your own well-being. That's just not how relationships work, right? Like you're always going to have be in relationships where they're going to infringe upon your own well-being because conflict is inherent in all relationships, right? I do think it's important to prioritize yourself, right? I think that comes back to holding the other person accountable and setting those boundaries. But I think the expectation is that nobody is, uh, you shouldn't ever allow any of those interactions to infringe upon or challenge or one beat is wrong because those people who matter to you, I mean, this is a difficult person, right? But there might be people out there who are having a conversation to you that you might say, well, my well-being comes first, I'm gonna shut it down. And you might then be the difficult person right there's mm. there the importance of engaging i think knowing that it's not necessarily always about you per the previous advice is good because you want to hear out those other people what they're saying what they're hearing how that fits with you and if it makes you uncomfortable sometimes that's a good thing so yes your own well-being comes first but the expectation of never allowing uh interaction or relationship to infringe upon your own or challenge your own well-being is not good advice. Yeah, I I also hear like this issue of boundaries. I think the piece of the advice about like not twisting yourself into a knot just to make yeah. someone else happy 
yeah. is good advice. That's, that means you are doing all the work. And uh, just to keep the peace and make other people happy does not work. That's a short-term strategy that has negative long-term consequences. I think your own well-being comes first. I, I don't know, but that feels a little culturally defined. Like that feels like a real um, westernized idea yeah. about kind of prioritizing the individual self over the collective well-being. Um, and I just am not sure that some people wouldn't benefit from a shift in perspective about also prioritizing others' well-being because I agree with Jacob, if your own well-being is the number one most important thing all the time, are you then that difficult person and that yes. challenging family member who has prioritized themselves and their own needs without recognizing other people's and uh, becomes kind of demanding or critical or infringing on other people's boundaries because your own well-being comes first? And I, I, I just am not. I'm just not sure. Um, first feels like a feels like the piece that I really get hung up on. I think your own well-being is. Ex extremely important and setting boundaries are truly important but those boundaries need to be flexible once right. they are rigid and have no ability to adapt that's when we see a lot of problems in families yeah i particularly uh like the idea of what is that balance between your own well-being and the well-being of the family system where mm -hmm. what does that balance look like it's it's very difficult and it's probably different for every single family but knowing that taking both into account or being mindful of of both is maybe the goal agreed interesting and all of this is very important as we just found in our research because it impacts your long-term health so awesome <laughs> I think that does us for our mini pod. As always, please send us advice that you've heard or maybe you read an article that you want us to go over like this person did. Um, you can email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a voice message. We'd love to hear from you at 865-229-6775. Tweet us at Attached Podcast. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Hi.